You're listening to sermons from Redeemer Church in Round Rock, Texas. Redeemer is a gospel-centered, missional family learning and living the way of Jesus in the suburbs of Austin. Good morning, church. You may be seated. Happy Labor Day weekend. If you're here this morning, it's because you stayed in town. Uh, Other people had better plans than you, but I'm glad that you're here this morning. Welcome to Redeemer. If you're a guest with us, my name is Jordan. I'm one of our pastors here at Redeemer. And it is really a privilege and an honor to get to uh, teach and preach God's word. Uh, Even when we get hot potato passages like this one, it is an honor and it's a privilege. Uh, Before we get back into this text, I do want to remind you quickly, um, next Sunday, uh, we will not have a 10 a.m. gathering. So if you show up at 10 a.m. next Sunday, uh, you will be awkward. Uh, We are moving to two services starting next Sunday. We have a 9 a.m. and a 1045 a.m beginning next Sunday, identical services. I'm just trying to make more space and more room as God continues to grow our church family here. So uh, just keep that in mind for next week. Okay, well, if you're not in 1 Corinthians 11, I want to encourage you to get there. Uh, We uh, are continuing in our study of 1 Corinthians today, and we come to this passage of Scripture, which is a complex and confusing text. I just want to say that up front. This sermon will probably be a bit longer than normal today because there is so much in the passage that we need to deal with, that we need to work through. I want you to know this. Here at Redeemer, we believe that um, all of Scripture is God-breathed, that it's profitable. 2 Timothy 3, 16 and 17 tells us this, and we believe this. It's all God-breathed. It's all of Scripture. It's profitable, uh, 2 Timothy says, for uh, training in righteousness, for equipping God's people for every good work. In other words, we believe that there is good news for us in every text. Good news in every text. And there's good news in this text. The key, though, is to make sure that we are reading every passage rightly, that we read it correctly. And this passage in particular, there are two errors that can be made with this text. And we end up then with a passage of Scripture that doesn't feel like very good news. Two errors that can be made. One is that we can underread this passage. And this is common. We can just say, you know what? This is all just cultural stuff first century Greco-Roman world. It means nothing for us today. Just forget about it and move on. And that would be an error. We don't want to make that error. The second error is that there are some who will overread this passage. So some will underread and then some will overread this passage. They'll say things like, listen, it's very clear what the Bible is saying. God's word is plain and it's simple. Just obey it. Just obey it. And that would also be an error. That would also be a mistake. Um, how many of you have ever either overread or underread IKEA instructions before? <clears throat> yes, all of us. And you know what happens when you end up overreading or underreading IKEA instructions? You end up in a bind because of it, don't you? You end up having to like go back and take tons of stuff apart, and uh, then you realize you don't have the stuff that you had before, and it just it, you end you end up in a mess. And many people are in this kind of a bind, in this kind of a mess, because of teachings. And the way people have taught this passage, either under-reading it or over-reading it. There are many, maybe even some of you who are here today, who are needing to take a bunch of stuff apart in your Christian faith and practice because people have misinterpreted, misappropriated, even weaponized this text in abusive ways, particularly abusive ways toward women. So here's what I want you to know. God is speaking in this text. And what I want to do today is I want to help us read it rightly so that we can receive the good news that's in it. So let me pray and ask for the Spirit's help, and we'll get to it. Let's pray. Father, we come before you 
in and through your son, Jesus, and we do pray that you would speak to us this morning as we open your word. We pray that you would help our minds and our hearts to be receptive, that you would even disarm our minds and disarm our hearts to receive your grace and your truth through your word. Holy Spirit, we ask that you would help us, that we would make much of Christ today and that we would honor and bring glory to Jesus. We say simply to you, God, we want you here this morning. We want you in this space. We invite you in. Speak to us now in Jesus' name. Amen. If you're taking notes, three things, three things. I hope you are taking notes. Three things. One, we need to read this text in light of its literary context. Two, we need to read it in light of its historical context. And three, if we're going to read it rightly, we need to read it in light of the gospel. Literary context, historical context, and the gospel. Reading this text in light of its literary context means that we recognize that these verses do not exist in a vacuum. Okay? They don't exist in a vacuum. We need to read this passage in light of the context of Paul's letter as a whole. And so what has Paul been doing in 1 Corinthians? Well, thankfully for us, we've been working through it. We've been paying attention to what Paul is doing in 1 Corinthians. Paul is writing as a pastor, caring for these young believers, urging them to keep the gospel central in their life, not to go back to pagan practices, but to hold firm to their uh, newfound faith in Jesus Christ, the Messiah, the resurrected Savior. And if you were with us last week, we summed up this long section of text, chapter 8, verse 1, through chapter 11, verse 1, and we said that Paul sums up this section this way, saying, asking the Corinthians to consider what story is your life telling? Remember, he says, whatever you do, whether you eat or drink, do all things to the glory of God. He, he says, consider your everyday life. What story is it telling to an unbelieving, watching world. And then chapter 11, verse 2, where our text begins today, starts a new section of Paul's letter. Paul shifts gears. And from 11.2 all the way through chapter 14.40, Paul is now going to be driving in a bit of a different direction, similar but different. The question that Paul is now going to drive us toward is not so much about our individual everyday life, but he's going to ask the question, what story is our corporate worship telling to an unbelieving world? And we're going to see this as we walk through. He's going to offer instructions and corrections for how the Corinthians are worshiping corporately in a way that is not reflecting the gospel, that's not consistent with the gospel, that's creating confusion, and even the word that he'll use in our text today, disgrace upon the church. And we see this begins in chapter 11, verse 2. Look back at 11, 2. Paul says, now I commend you. You could underline that. You're like, finally, something good. <laughs> I commend you. Because you remember me in everything and maintain the traditions even as I delivered them to you. Paul is offering a rare attaboy to the Corinthians. He's commending them as he begins this new section. And I think it's important for us to pay attention to what he's commending them for. He's commending them for keeping what the ESV translates as the traditions that he delivered to them. Later on in the Corinthian letter, Paul's going to say, I delivered to you that of first importance, Christ crucified and raised. Anytime you see this word where Paul refers to his traditions or other parts of the Bible, Paul will refer to as his teaching. He tells Titus to guard the 
teaching. He's talking about the core gospel message that he's delivered. And so he's commending them. He's saying, you've actually done a really good job. You, you've hold, you're holding on to the gospel message. You're, you're, you're like taking it seriously. In fact, so seriously that they are beginning to over-appropriate their newfound freedom in Christ. This has been the story of all of the Corinthian letter, hasn't it? Paul teaches about freedom in Christ, freedom from sin, freedom from uh, death and Satan, freedom from previous ways of being identified in a culture, right? Galatians 3.28, this is Paul's core teaching. Now in Christ, there is no longer a Jew nor Gentile, slave nor free, male or female. The back part of Ephesians chapter two, it's about how there's no longer hostility between different types of people, but we're now one in Christ. What is key to, to the, Paul's teaching? Freedom found in the gospel. And it's evident in this letter that the Corinthians have aced the test on understanding their freedom in Christ. In fact, they've taken it too far. Paul's been correcting their over-application of their newfound freedom in Christ. So hear me, is it possible that the Corinthian Christians were overemphasizing this freedom? Is it possible that they are overemphasizing this freedom to the point of now throwing off male and female distinctions in the church? There's no longer male or female, so we can throw those distinctions off in our worship. We can worship God disgendered. I think it's possible. I think it's possible. And just like the rest of the letter, Paul is writing to correct this misunderstanding, this misappropriation of the gospel to this very young church. So in light of the literary context, let's look at what Paul says again. Look at verse 3. He says, I want you to understand the head of every man is Christ, and the head of a wife is her husband, and the head of Christ is God. The word Head there, it, means, it can mean two things. It means two different things throughout the Bible. It can mean authority or it can mean source. Authority or, or source. I think Paul is using it to mean both at different points throughout this passage. Verse four, <clears throat> excuse me. Every man who prays or prophesies with his head covered dishonors his head. But every wife who prays or prophesies with her head, I'm sorry, with his head covered, dishonors his head. But every wife who prays or prophesies with her head uncovered dishonors her head, since it is the same as if it were shaven. For if a wife will not cover her head, then she should cut her hair short. But since it is disgraceful for a wife to cut off her hair or shave her head, let her cover her head. For a man ought not to cover his head, since he is the image and glory of God. But woman is the glory of man. For man was not made from woman, but woman for man. Neither was man created for woman, but woman for man. That is why a wife ought to have a symbol of authority on her head, because of the angels. That's weird. Uh, we'll come back to that. Nevertheless, Paul says, back to the point, in the Lord, woman is not independent of man, nor woman of man, a man of woman, for as woman was made for man, so man is now born of woman, and all things are from God. And this is really kind of the point of his argument. Verse 13, judge for yourself, is it proper? Is it proper for a wife to pray to God with her head uncovered? Does not nature itself teach you that if a man wears long hair, it is a disgrace for him? But if a woman has long hair, it is her glory, for her hair is given to her for a covering. Okay. First things first, the Apostle Paul is not a woman hater, okay? He's not. 
First thing first. Um, he's clear that women in Corinth are to be involved and participating in the worship of the gathered church, isn't he? It's clear in the text. Notice it's men and women who are praying and prophesying, praying and speaking, <laughs> men and women. And, and this should help us as we get to chapter 14 later uh, in a few weeks, where Paul talks about how wives should be silent. This will help us when we get there. He's clear that in the gathered church, the house church of first century Corinth, both men and women are praying and prophesying. So what is Paul's concern? What is the issue? Well, the concern is order. It's order. Paul has a high view of gathered worship, which is why he talks about angels. We'll come back to that. He has a high view of the gathered worship. Gathered worship is not about me. It's not about you. It's not about self. It's about Christ, honoring Christ, who is the head of the church. It's about building up the church into Christ. It's about non-believers who are coming into our worship, which this was, would have been the case in Corinth. Non-believers who were peeking in to Christian worship, not being confused or distracted by what was going on. And this brings us to the historical context of the passage. You see, head coverings had specific meaning in the first century Greco-Roman world. Um, who wore a head covering? And when you wore a head covering could tell many different stories in ancient Corinth. For example, if you were a man who wore a head covering while you were worshiping, it would tell the story that you were a Roman worshiping pagan gods. Okay? If you were a woman not wearing a head covering in first century uh, Greco-Roman culture, it meant that you were single and ready to mingle. More specifically, it, 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 it was a picture of what the prostitutes would do at Aphrodite's temple, which was right there in the heart of Corinth. Prostitutes would stand unveiled with their heads uncovered, telling a story. Aphrodite was the god of, of fertility and sexuality. The goddess, excuse me. So a head covering told a story. Specifically for women or for wives, a head covering in first century Greco-Roman world was a cultural artifact that had meaning in the same way that this thing on your, ring, on your finger. What is this in our culture? It's a cultural artifact. What meaning does it have? It means something. It means that I'm married. And so the, the, a wife wearing a head covering in first century Greco-Roman world uh, in its simplest form, said, I honor my husband. It was a sign of my chastity and my belonging wholly to my husband. Now we see why Paul doesn't want them taking them off in worship when they're praying and prophesying. Now, it's also important to keep in mind that, uh, that Corinth, in first century world was a, was a honor-shame culture, okay? And we see this kind of peppered throughout this text, don't we? Dishonor, disgrace, uh, the idea of authority and honor. It, it's an honor-shame culture, which is very different for us. Um, in an honor-shame culture, the emphasis is not on yourself, which that's the emphasis in our culture. We're, we're in kind of a guilt-innocence culture. We often think of God that way. Am I guilty before God? Yes, what do I need to do? I need, I need Jesus so that I could be forgiven, um, which, which is good and true. In an honor-shame culture, the emphasis is not on yourself and what you need. In honor-shame cultures, the emphasis is always on making sure that you do not dishonor or disgrace others, making sure that you honor the authority, honor others. And this was the air that they breathed in first century Corinth. Okay, 
For example, Japan is a place that I've been several times, and Japan is an honor-shame culture. So uh, when you walk into someone's house, you do not walk into their house with your shoes on. You take your shoes off, not because you want to show people how cool and trendy your socks are, which everybody's socks in Japan are pretty cool and trendy. You take your shoes off, why? To honor the host, right? Everything in an honor-shame culture revolves around honoring the other person. It's not on yourself. It's, it's around not bringing shame upon those that you love and those you respect. This is also why in Japan, uh, Japan has one of the highest suicide rates uh, in the world, Be, especially between uh, men ages 20 to 40. It's the highest in the world. If you go to Japan, there's like anti-suicide campaigns everywhere, and it has been for the last 10 years. Why? Because men in their 20s and 40s will take their own lives if they feel like they are bringing dishonor and shame upon who? Their family, those whom they love and respect. So this is important. Paul doesn't want the church worshiping in a way that would dishonor or disgrace one another. In fact, you, we'll see this next week when we get to uh, the, the sec, this next part of chapter 11. In chapter 11, verse 22, Paul is uh, correcting the way that they're taking the Lord's Supper. And he says, you're taking the Lord's Supper in a way that despises or humiliates, that shames the poor in the church. So this is consistent with how we read the rest of the letter. Wives, don't dishonor your husbands by taking your head covering off when you're prophesying and praying. Men, don't dishonor Christ. Who's your head? Who's your authority? By putting a head covering on and looking like pagans and confusing others as you worship. We see this is consistent. So, What is Paul saying here? Well, here's what I think Paul is saying. I think in this text, Paul is saying, ladies, stop throwing off your veils while you're praying and prophesying. We don't know why they're doing this. This Scholars are confused. Nobody has a really, uh, there's some theories out there, but nobody really knows why this is happening. But but it is happening. And and it's happening even to the point that Paul thinks, expects them to be contentious about this in verse 16. And so I think Paul is saying, ladies, stop throwing off your veils while you're prophesying, praying for several reasons. Number one, it dishonors your husbands. Number two, it's distracting from Christ. The point is Christ. And and, and here is a lady with her veil off, which would have been scandalous. You know, there are some modern day comps. If if women showed up to worship unveiled, you know, like it would have been, it's distracting from Christ. So don't do that. Number three, it's confusing to non-believers. It blurs the lines of gender. It's not proper, he says. Number four, Paul doesn't want non-believers in their midst to get the wrong idea about the gospel. He doesn't want them to get the wrong idea about Christ, to get the wrong idea about the church. And so let me just give you a summary statement of what I think Paul is saying in 11, 2 through 16. If you're taking notes, you can write this down. I think it'll be on the screen. Here's what I think Paul is saying. Paul is instructing men and women in the church to keep decorum, that honors the male and female distinction. Paul is instructing them, keep decorum, that honors male and female distinctions. He's going to say this honors God, who made you distinctly male and female. It displays God's good design. It doesn't blur the lines of gender. And it builds up the church in the gospel rather than distracting or disgracing honor shame culture. This is what I think Paul is saying. Now, what about all the other stuff in the text? (laughs) There's a bunch of other stuff in the text. What about all that stuff? Well, I think verse 16 leads us to believe that Paul expects people to be contentious about this. And so 
all the other stuff in the text is Paul baking in some appeals around these instructions uh, and, and kind of a preemptive response to those who would be contentious about this. And he really gives three appeals that he kind of bakes in. It's not linear. It's, he bakes them in as he goes. Three appeals that men and women in the church need to keep decorum that honors the male and female distinction. One, he appeals to protology. Talk about that in a second. What is that? We're doing some theology today. This is good. It's good for us. What is protology? He appeals to nature, number two, and he appeals to angels, number three. Protology. What is protology? Well, um, if eschatology, if you know that term, is the study of last things or end times, protology is the study of what? Beginning. First things. It's the study of beginnings. And so Paul is appealing in verse 7 and 9 where he mentions image and glory. When he says man is the, the glory of God and woman is the glory of man, he's appealing to protology in verses 11 and 12. He's appealing to protology. He's appealing to what the Bible teaches us about the beginning, about God's good intent, about God's design. And when we read Genesis chapter 1 and 2, what is it that we find? That's the question. In fact, I want to challenge you, maybe this afternoon, uh, there's no NFL football today, that starts next week. Um, Maybe this afternoon, you can open up Genesis chapter 1 and 2, and I want you to read it. I want to challenge you to read it, and I want you to consider what do we see when we read Genesis chapter 1 and 2. I think this is what we see. We see God creating a world that is ordered to flourish. Do you hear me? He's creating a world that is ordered in such a way that shalom, peace, wholeness, so that it would flourish. For example, what does we see God doing? He's creating light from what? Darkness. He's creating earth separated from the heavens. Dry land out of the seas. God's bringing order. He's creating order to flourish, for flourishing. And then we get to the crown jewel of his creation, humans. And what does he do? It's consistent, isn't it? He creates woman from man. Order for flourishing. Light from darkness. Earth separated from seas. He's, he's, it's, it's distinct, there's distinction Uh, and compatibility for the sake of flourishing, for the sake of what the Bible calls good, goodness. When he gets to man and woman, he says it's very goodness in this order, in this. So do you see what the Bible is teaching us about creation? It's full of these complementary realities, day and night, dry land and sea, heavens and earth, uh, realities that are distinct from one another, but are dependent upon one another. And so it is with man and woman. Order ordered to flourish and create in our created reality. Now, I want to be clear about this. The Bible teaches that men and women are equally created in the image of God. This is important to be clear about this because this is where this text has been misappropriated and weaponized. Men and women are created equally and with glorious dignity, with value, equal value. But men and women are not the same, are they? No, by God's design, men and women are different. Men and women are distinct, equal, but distinct. Equal in value, different in form and function is what we see in Genesis chapter 1 and 2. This is what biblical protology would teach us. He makes them biologically distinct, yet complementary. Literally, body parts that fit together. This is the picture. 
He gives them distinct roles, complementary roles, roles that they cannot fulfill. Adam and Eve could not fulfill the creation mandate without one another, distinct but dependent. And so I think to defy or to deny the distinction between men and women is to defy or deny the good design and the good order that God has put into creation. Um, This week, I came across the work of Sarah Salviander, who's a PhD astrophysicist at the University of Texas at Austin. And she came to Christ through her scientific research, which is really an incredible story. Uh, You could Google her if you want to learn more about her. But she wrote this. She said, As an astrophysicist, I first came to recognize God through the design and sheer awesomeness of the universe. But the more I learned about biology, particularly human beings, the more I stand amazed. Galaxies are incredible and awesome structures. But in terms of complexity and design, they don't even come close to the awesomeness of human bodies, male and female bodies. I don't understand why some atheists are so down on humankind and think that we're nothing compared to the universe. A universe filled with stars and galaxies and black holes may be immense and grand, but I can simulate a lot of it with a relatively simple Fortran program. I have no idea what that is. She goes on, she says, it's got nothing on the sheer wonder constrained within a single human body, which is its own biological universe of unbelievable complexity and purpose. What does this have to do with 1 Corinthians 11? Listen, God has loaded so much goodness and glory, awesomeness, as Salviander says, into his, crea- into his creation. And that awesomeness, that glory, that goodness exists in distinction between men and women. This is what Paul is appealing to in verse 7 through 9. This is what he's talking about. The awesomeness, the distinction of men and women in creation. He's talking here about the distinction that God is giving them, both men and women biologically, uh, in our bodies, and in our role. Men made first, uniquely, with size and strength and sensibilities for purpose, to lead. Women made from man as unique and glorious help in the creation mandate. It's literally the word that we see, helper, uh, in the creation story, the woman is the helper, and that is not doesn't mean like an assistant or um, um, uh, the assistant to the what, what is uh, in, in the office? Yeah, there you go, whatever that one is. It's not what it means. It's, it's not a second class status. It's the same word that's used in the Psalms when it says God is our help. Do you hear me? It's significant. It's important, but distinct in role and in purpose. Now, don't miss this. Paul says in verse 11, after he, after he kind of hits us with this truth, he says, nevertheless, verse 11 and 12, he doesn't want people taking this too far. He doesn't want people in the church beginning to treat women like second-class citizens. That's the whole point of his teaching, of his tradition that he commends them for in verse 2. And unfortunately, too many people have done this. Too many people have abused, turned the church into an abusive space, uh, treating women like they're not significant, like they don't have a role. Look what he says. He says, nevertheless, in the Lord, verse 11, uh, women is not, uh, uh, in the Lord, woman is not independent of man or man of woman. For as a woman was made for man, so man is now born of woman, and all things are from God. 
What's he appealing to? He's appealing to the interdependence, to the complementary reality of men and women. According to Paul in this text, a big piece of our Christian practice and our Christian witness in the world is to honor and keep the male and female distinction that God created. Why? Well, because of what we believe about sin. The curse of sin, the fall, uh, it, it created a world where we want to throw off the male and female distinctions. God creates enmity between, uh, sin creates, creates enmity between uh, man and woman. Because of sin, we, we begin to blur the lines of gender. We have propensities within each of us as men and as women because of sin to abandon our responsibilities and our callings. But Paul says, remember the gospel. In the gospel, God is redeeming us from the curse of sin. What is God doing in the gospel? He's restoring us in God's good design, God's good order, God's good purpose. Men being godly men and women being godly women. And we need to define those terms. So what does this look like for us? What does it look like for us to hold up the male-female distinction because of Christ and because of his gospel? Well, I want to be clear it no longer looks like women wearing head coverings. Whew, okay, got that out of the way. Um, you're good. Um, in fact, there are people who will overread this text. And in and, 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 and doing so, and saying women need to be wearing head coverings even still today, they'll make arguments like, well, because of feminism, uh, everybody wore head coverings until the 1950s and 60s, and then because of feminism, they stopped. Listen, it, you would completely defy the principle of this text if we said women need to wear head coverings. The whole principle is that we would not uh, be culturally confusing. <laughs> if you wore a head covering, how culturally confusing would that be right now? Like, Wait, what? What is that? Okay, so that's not, that's, that's not a way that we apply this passage. But the lines between men and women are certainly getting blurred in our culture, aren't they? They have been blurred in our culture. We live in a world that's trying to erase all distinctions between men and women. So God's word is speaking here, isn't it? It is God's breath. It's God breathed. It's profitable for us. In fact, we live in a world that is taking this erasing of distinction between men and women so far that it is normal, trying to normalize that men can become women and women can become men. This, this text is profitable for us, isn't it? It's helping us. It's training us in righteousness and equipping us to be God's faithful people. So what is the application for us? Well, I think that this text calls us now more than ever to practice healthy complementarianism in the home and in the church. What is complementarianism? First, I hit you with protology. Now let's talk about complementarianism. What is complementarianism? Well, Denny, Berkey, uh, Denny Burke is helpful for us here. Uh, here's what he says. He says, complementarianism teaches that God has designed male and female as equal and different. They are equal bearers of the divine image, equal partakers in the, life, in the grace of life, and equal partners in the creation mandate. We've already talked about a lot of this. None of this precious equality diminishes at all the biological and social differences that God has woven into his design of male and female. These beautiful differences are not contradictions, but complements, hence the term. They're not contradictions, they're complements. They are part of God's magnificent plan to make his glory cover the earth as the waters cover the sea. 
For this reason, these differences are not a bane to us, but a good to us. Embracing and living out these differences in the home and in the church are the pathway that God has designed for our full and lasting joy. So what does it mean to practice this? What does it mean to practice complementarianism? It means that we want to see men in the church and in the home engaging the responsibility that God has given them. Men, this means that it's going to require you to take up your cross and following Jesus and to go against the grain of your flesh. Your flesh, men, is going to cause you to either drift and trend toward apathy and and passivity, um, to leap from your responsibility, or your flesh is going to, which is its own form of selfishness, or your flesh is going to lead you to, to a different form of selfishness, which is to lord, which is not to love, but to lord, to control. And this calls us as men to go against the grain of our flesh and follow Christ, to become like Christ. This is what Paul teaches in Ephesians 5, isn't it? Husbands, love your wives as Christ loved the church, sacrificing for them, sacrificial servant leadership, stepping up to the responsibility that God has given you. Listen, I've observed this. This isn't in my notes, by the way. I've observed this. As men get older, and you, you probably will say, I, I've got a, I, this is true, I battle this in my own life. As men get older, here's what I've observed. From 20s to 30s to 40s to 50s, there is a trend line that if we are not taking up our cross and going against the grain of our flesh, there is a trend line where men become passive and apathetic. In fact, when Josh Rees and I were planting this church, you don't know how many times we sat around and said, where are the spiritual fathers to help us? There's a trend line. And, and, and the men that are activated in the church and in the home in their 50s and 60s, it's because they followed Christ out of apathy into servant leadership, into assuming responsibility, into caring. And so this is what we want to see. We want to see men in this church. We're after this. Men here who are called out of passivity and apathy, out of um, uh, toxic forms of leadership and into servant leadership. Men acting like men, as Paul says in 1 Corinthians 16, 13, and 14. Flip there. 1 Corinthians 16, 13, and 14. Look what he says. He says, be watchful. Stand firm in the faith. Act like men. He doesn't say be men. You are men. He says, act like it though. Act like what you are. Watchful. You're you're engaged. Courageous in your faith. Strong. God has made you strong biologically. Strong. Verse 14. And let all that you do be done in love. Who does that sound like? Sounds like Jesus. We want to see men acting like men. And we need to talk more about this, and we will. And notice I said healthy complementarianism. We want to practice healthy complementarianism. That means that none of this at all is at the expense of women. Women are not second-class citizens in the kingdom of God. In fact, to, to function that way as the church, would be, that would be anti-gospel to practice complementarianism in that way. That would treat women as insignificant, as lesser. We will not do that here. We will not do that. But it does mean that women are also called to take up their cross and to go against the grain of their flesh. 
doesn't it? Do you see it? Both of us, this is what Paul says in Ephesians 5, by the way, as he talks to husbands and wives. Everything in Ephesians 5 about husbands and wives flows out of verse 21 that says um, uh, we're all functioning out of submission to Christ, submission unto Christ. We're all following Jesus. So it does mean that women will also need to go against the grain of their flesh in order to trust and to respect and to desire the leadership of the men that God has placed and authority in their life, whether it's husbands in the home or pastors and elders in the church. And God has built all kinds of safeguards into his family. Because you might say, well, what if my husband is, <laughs> he's not worth following? I would say, you're probably right, right now. That's why God's given pastors to come in and like Paul and teach and correct and love and admonish. Well, what if my pastor? <laughs> well, that's why God calls us to a plurality of eldership. Right? Do you see, do you see the, the, the ecosystem that God has created in the church family? And there's so much more that could be said about this. I wish I, I wish I could say more, but I need to leave this here. But this is the implication. And if this is new to you, or if this is hard to you, or if this feels like a wound to you, um, I want you to know that I would love to keep talking with you about this. Both men and women would love to, I would love to keep these conversations going. Our elders here, uh, other leading women in our church, we would love to keep these conversations going. So reach out to us. Now, so this is the, that's the first appeal, protology. Uh, Male-female distinctions, we need to honor it, we need to keep it, because it displays God's good design. But then he adds more layers to his appeal, that we ought to keep the male and female distinction in the church. First, he says nature, verse 14, he says nature teaches us this. I want to be really brief here. There's two schools of thought on what Paul might be meaning here. There's some scholars who think Paul is saying, well, your common nature or common sense would tell you that men and women are different. Therefore, men and women should um, look different. We shouldn't blur the lines. There's other scholars that will say that what Paul is referring to here when he says nature is actually science. That Paul is saying, science tells us that men and women are different and we ought not blur the lines. This is why he starts talking about hair. And there's actually some merit to this. I'm not going to go into this too much, but if you're interested in this, I can, I can send you some articles. Um, there's actually some evidence that like the medical uh, opinion of the day, the medical wisdom of the day that flew from Hippocrates right? Doctors today take the Hippocratic Oath um, that, that, that basically would say that men and women's hair were key to fertility. So men, women needed long hair, men needed short hair. This was the medical science. So either way, whether Paul's appealing to common sense or he's appealing to science, to nature, it doesn't matter. He's just beefing up his point that we need to honor male and female distinctions. And then if these contentious people aren't yet convinced, he appeals to angels in verse 10. What? Thanks, Paul. If you remember in chapter 10, Paul did something similar with demons. Remember this? He's talking about idolatry and he just kind of drops in demons and then moves on. It's clear that, uh, that, that uh, the original readers, uh, the original audience of the Bible were not flat Westerners who lived in a world of rationality and materialism, but that they believed in a, in, in the, they believed in a spiritual realm that there's a spiritual realm. There's demons behind idol worship. So what do you think is behind the worship of God's people? Spiritual realities, spiritual beings. Paul is saying angels are, are peeking in. This is why he says, verse 10, uh, this is why a wife ought to have a symbol of authority on her head because of the angels. This is why a, a wife ought to make sure that she's, uh, that she's in the right decorum because there's a spiritual reality going on in our worship. In other words, what we do here 
what the church always does when it gathers, it is not a social hour. This is not a social hour. This is a spiritual reality. And I think this, um, I think this speaks to us a bit here, doesn't it? And, and, and by the way, Jewish tradition was that angels uh, kept, uh, watched over to keep order among God's people and even participated in worship. That's a cool thought, that there are like spiritual beings that are cheerleading us on as we worship Christ, our Savior, who's in the heavenly places. That's a cool thought. And so I think this speaks to us. It offers a good critique that we need. I don't think it hurts any of us to think about our attitudes as we come into this place. I don't think it hurts any of us to think about our attire as we come into this place. Are we too casual in this space? Do we treat it like a social hour? Now, you know, we could, there's two extremes here. We could say you need to kind of button up and put your suit back on and give God your best. But we also know that people can button up and put their suit on, flashy hat and dress, and it's really all about themselves and showing themselves off here. So we don't want to miss the heart of what Paul is saying. Paul is saying that the gathered worship service is not about us. It's about Christ. Come with the right attitude to honor him. There's, there's a critique here that I think is needed for modern worship. There's a lot of platform building. There's a lot of appearance-driven worship that distracts from Christ our King. That could be a flashy suit or hat. It could be preachers in tight jeans with plunging Vs. It's not about us. It's about Christ. Church family, Paul is reminding us what we are doing here as God's people is serious. It's a grace, it's a gift to be his church, to participate together in Christ. It's a grace, it's a gift to represent Christ. It's a blessing and an honor to be men and women using our gifts in Christ for his sake and for our good. Now, it would be a mistake if we were to read this passage in light of its literary context, in light of its historical context, but not read it in light of the gospel. After all, Jesus is why we are here, isn't he? We're all here because of him, because we've encountered him, because he's met us with his grace, because he's changed us, because we love him. We can't, uh, we can't uh, stop thinking about him, who he is, when we read his gospels. We want to follow him. We trust him. So where is Jesus? Where is he at in this text? Well, I want you to see him. I want you to see him in the beginning. I want you to see Jesus, whom you love and who's loved you. See him in the beginning, creating men and women, calling what he's created very good. I want you to see him in the gospel, living and dying and rising again, full of grace and truth in order to redeem us from the curse of sin and to reestablish us in God's good design as men and women. We need to see him right now, on his throne in the heavenly places, deserving all of our attention and all of our affection and our worship. I want you to hear me. He is not in the heavenly places right now, heaping arbitrary rules upon his people or ordaining oppressive systems in the home and in the church. That's not where he is. This is not who he is. He is the head of the church, his body, whom he loves whom he leads with grace and truth until the day that he comes again. This is our Savior. Let's pray. Father, Son, Holy Spirit, we give you thanks for your word. We thank you that when we read it rightly, it speaks to us, that you speak to us, that it does teach us, it does correct us, it challenges us, 
It reminds us this word, your word, reminds us that we are not our own authority. But we have the good authority of Jesus Christ over us. I pray that as we continue to wrestle with what your word says and what it teaches and what it means for us as men and women in the home, in the world, in the church, that we would work that out together in love with grace. I pray that as we enter into this time of response that your word would, uh, would, would go down deep into our hearts and our mind that as we come to the table, that your grace would meet us and it would go down deep into our hearts and minds and form us and shape us. I pray that you would meet each one of us where we are today in this time of response. Holy Spirit, we invite you into this space. It's in Jesus' name that we pray. Amen. Thanks for listening. If you are looking for info, find our website at RedeemerRR.org or download the Redeemer Round Rock app from the Android or iOS app store.